The Mnuchin one was really difficult because his father, who has the same name, pronounces it differently. And the art gallery is like a third one. Right. Like they all decided, eh, we'll just do our own thing. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias, and and starting this week, uh, we're going to be giving you a double dose of The Weeds each week, recording one episode on Wednesday, one episode on Friday. Uh, That means, you know, we're we're expanding uh, the range of voices that we have on here. We're going to be hearing from uh, a larger set of the people in the the Vox.com family so we can take on more topics and and we can do coverage uh, more often without, you know, overburdening uh, poor poor Ezra. Um, So this week, uh, I'm really excited excited to have with me uh, Yoki Driesen and Jennifer Williams from our foreign policy and national security team. They're going to help us break down some of these scandals, situations involving Michael Flynn, investigations into Trump and Russia that have been really dominating the news lately. It's been a busy week, so I can't think of a better time to kick off the double weeds experiment. And I wanted to start, Jen, with just, I think the biggest like actual development of the week is we have the appointment of a special counsel. Right. It's a big deal. It has big implications for the future. I also think that, like most normal people, have no idea, like, what does that mean? Like, what's what's so special about him? Right, totally. Um, so special counsel, you'll hear people throw around the word special prosecutor and special counsel kind of interchangeably. Um, they're not quite the same thing. Um, they're pretty close. There's just like a slight difference between um, basically like the kind of level of independence they have. Um, but in general, special counsel or special prosecutor, um, in this case, we have a special counsel, um, they're brought in in cases when the FBI basically decides that there's an investigation that they're doing uh, into a high level officials at the federal level um, and that there is going to be a conflict of interest um, or even just the perception of a conflict of interest. And so in that case, um, they will try to find like a really uh, experienced lawyer or a highly respected judge. They usually tend to look for like bipartisan credentials, um, someone who's really independent. And the point is to bring in an outside independent person who is not you know, beholden to the party or Um, wasn't an appointee of the president, and have that person take over the investigation to kind of remove any sort of, you know, perception or appearance um, or actual um, kind of conflict of interest. So Um, when's when's the last time we had one of these? um, So we've had them kind of throughout history. Um, The most, you know, famous time was probably during Watergate. Um, We had them during Whitewater, the Clinton kind of Whitewater scandal, after the FBI uh, raid on um, in Waco on the Branch Davidians, there was a, a special counsel, um, independent counsel there. So we've had them kind of throughout history. A lot of presidents, both Democrat and Republican, um, have been kind of under um, scrutiny or their administrations, rather. Um, so it's it's actually kind of a foundational kind of part of American history. Like, it's, it's kind of always been there. After Watergate, right, they passed this law to create the um, independent prosecutor, I think it was called. Right. And and so both Iran-Contra and Watergate were investigated by by that kind of right. office, which was special in the sense that those people had um, genuinely could not be fired by the president and had sort of unlimited budget. I think especially in, in Whitewater, people came to have the feeling that it would sort of go rogue, right? That they they appointed Ken Starr initially to look into this Arkansas land deal. He didn't ever bring any charges related to that. But instead of saying, 
yeah, I looked into it. Here's my report on what happened. There was no charges. He went looking for other stuff. Right. And and, and he found it. Um, So then after that, we went back to the older system so that was it Patrick Fitzgerald was a, a special counsel to look into the the Valerie Plame thing right right so we didn't actually go back to like an older system we basically it's basically all kind of ad hoc so um there was a great piece recently and I can't remember who did it basically talking about how in in America we don't really have a really good like institutional system for dealing with corruption and how right. like, we basically just ad hoc it all the way through um so Congress passed this law like you said after after Watergate um, created this kind of office of a independent counsel or special prosecutor that had like a lot of power that basically answered to Congress and not really the FBI. And um, but eventually, around I think 1999, they they let the the law lapse. And so since then, um, the FBI took it upon themselves. Uh, Janet Reno um, actually is the one who who did it. Um, and use their own kind of internal uh, regulations to create basically like an identical, as much as they could, office of a special counsel. The only difference is like this person is actually beholden and accountable to the attorney general, or in this case, it would be the deputy attorney general because Jeff Sessions has recused himself. But there's a lot of power, like the special counsel has a lot of power. And the thing about like the going rogue, that could actually still happen sure. in the sense, uh, like in this case, um, because the mandate that they're given, um, especially in this particular case that Mueller was given, um, you know, is to look into this particular, you know, issue of, you know, potential collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. Um, but they also have the ability to request further jurisdiction if they find, you know, they're, if something comes up during the investigation, they're absolutely allowed to say, hey, I need to follow this lead. It's an investigation. Right. It'll go where it goes. And, and it's, I mean, it seemed like before Comey's firing, that in a concrete sense, they were looking at the finances of Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort right. and maybe others. I mean, it's it's completely possible that Paul Manafort was doing some kind of illegal money laundering without it also being the case that Paul Manafort was working hand in glove with the GRU to manipulate the American election, right? Like they may be found lawbreaking. And they no, were I, I think that's right. I mean, there are also some massive differences between the special counsel and special prosecutor that we should stress because they are very, very different. So one is the special counsel could be fired. Right. Um, the special prosecutor could not be. So it's a huge difference because we've, as we've seen, Donald Trump doesn't mind doing ethically questionable things about firing people. He had a show about it. It's a... Uh, Exactly. He seems to mock other people's ratings for their same show. Uh, you know, Jeff Sessions recused himself for Russia stuff, but then was involved in firing Jim Comey. Right. So Mueller's, uh, or Mueller, I should say, his job security is not guaranteed. The other difference is that when you had a special prosecutor, it was designed to be a public accounting of Clinton's sins. You know, right. Ken Starr testified, leading ultimately to impeachment. I mean, that was the goal. The goal was, right. could you find stuff to be impeachable? And he did, ultimately. With Mueller, that's not the case at all. His final report is private. It does not go to Congress. There's no, it does not go public. It's a criminal probe. So what he does along the way is grand jury. So in the way, a Congress congressional probe stuff would leak in the Republic hearings. Right. With Mueller, that's not the case. And it, it's worth bearing in mind that the Mueller goal is criminal indictment. The Ken Starr goal was impeachment. So they're very, very different. So it's closer to a conventional federal prosecutorial situation where they look into things they bring criminal charges if they decide to, but if they don't, they don't. Definitely. And, and the public never necessarily knows right. what went on in the black box. Yeah, like they could find plenty of stuff that looks really bad and that like voters probably, you know, wouldn't like or, you know, congressmen and women probably wouldn't like to see. Like there could be a ton of shady stuff, but if it doesn't actually like 
come to the point of a specific crime, um, you know, a specific like federal statute was violated or, you know, alternately, if they, you know, if, if Mueller decides that like he doesn't have enough, you know, evidence provable in court to actually like prosecute. And we're talking like prosecuting really high level people, especially, I mean, if it, if it could potentially go up to the president, I don't know. Um, you want to have a pretty solid case. So if he doesn't have that, he may choose not to seek an indictment at a grand jury, which means that we'll never see any of the stuff that he he found. Yeah. And I mean, this is important because I think I think David Frum has has made this point at, at some length, but that, you know, when you're talking about potential collusion with the Russian government, you're talking about there may or may not be laws broken in that. But really, the charge is of a kind of a political crime right. to say you are betraying the values and interests of the United States for electoral advantage. Uh, but it's not illegal per se to make political deals with people who you think can help you. I mean, that's politics, right? It's that when the people you think can help you are the Russian intelligence services that rises to a higher level, but it's not, it's not, it's not obvious that there's even a crime that's been alleged against Trump in, in regard to this. And so, you know, that's why I think there's been interest from day one in a congress, something like a 9-11 commission or a select committee, someone whose, you know, purpose is to find facts and, and inform the public about what happened. Right. There's also the the unforeseen consequences element of this, which the two congressional probes, the ones that are both in the House and the Senate, these are political in nature. I mean, these are designed to be public. They're designed to be looking at the politics side of it, the political impact, not the criminal side. They depend on cooperation from the FBI and, and DOJ. And there is a very real possibility that even if Mueller's intentions are good, and we have no reason to think otherwise, that will slow by necessity because the FBI's resources are so much bigger than what Congress has. The congressional staff are part-time. FBI obviously is full-time. Mueller's bringing in former colleagues of his from the private sector. He has sort of an FBI network to draw on. So his powers are vast. His resources are vast. So there's a real possibility that what many Democrats were kind of looking forward to, which were public hearings with key people where they can be barraged with hard questions, won't happen because those key people are now being talked to potentially by a grand jury and certainly by FBI investigators. On some level, though, that seems perhaps more theoretical than real, if only because I think Democrats have been having trouble getting Republicans really on board for the kind of enthusiastic hearings that they were looking for. I mean, at least I've I've heard that worry more from sort of concern trolling Republicans on the Hill than from from actual Democrats. Uh, but what can we say about Robert Mueller? I mean, he he had a, a long tenure as FBI director, 12 years. Uh, Obama kept him on two extra years. Um, and he seems to have, compared to both his successor and his predecessor, managed to uh, mostly get along with people and not have, like, huge partisan blowups. Um, it, it actually seems like like a really solid choice who, you know, people like and who did a good job and was not involved in I guess the one big controversial thing he was involved with was in 2004, he had this showdown uh, with some of the Bush administration's lawyers over um, surveillance. And it, it, I mean, it was it was an episode that reflected well on him, ultimately. It's a good thing you're, you're listening to this uh, on audio because I, I kind of look like garbage today. And, and the reason is I did not shave. Um, if you want to look good, you need a great shave. If you want a great shave, you need to use the art of shaving. It was founded in New York in 1996. They've been helping guys look their best for over 20 years. Uh, they have a total routine covered. Uh, they got shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, and fragrances. Their award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients with pure essential oils. Uh, so they got the four elements of the 
Perfect Shave, created to deliver smooth results every day. You start by prepping skin with your signature pre-shave oil, then you create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied to a shave brush. You shave, then you replenish moisture with an aftershave balm. Uh, you can finish off with one of five fragrances, sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. Each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. Arter Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to shave on your favorite products while never having to worry. Uh, before I go out tonight, definitely going to shave, going to use some of this stuff, going to look good, going to feel good. Um, so our listeners can receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code WEEDS. To get this offer, you go online to theartofshaving.com, use our special promo code WEEDS to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Free shipping is great. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or for a consultation with a grooming expert, step into one of their many retail locations all across the country. If you were to go into a laboratory and try to create from scratch the person and type of person Donald Trump would least like to see in this job, you would get Mueller. I mean, this is a guy who, first of all, is East Coast elite, which Trump hates. He has a numeral after his name. His middle name is really fancy. He went to the same boarding school as John Kerry. So he's wealthy and patrician, and he's sort of the kind of person Trump hates. He is also the kind of person that took over the FBI right after 9-11. I mean, sort of a key part of his bio is he took it over when it was still seen as crime-fighting and sluggish and made it into a much more counter-terror-focused organization. He actually he, saved it. They were talking about, you know, kind of maybe breaking up the FBI um, during the time when we were kind of like reorganizing the entire intelligence community. And basically his his effort, I mean, obviously other people were involved, but it was it was largely credited to him to actually saving the FBI as an institution. And he's also Jim Comey's best friend. Uh, he right. and Jim Comey worked together really closely. You know, the, the moment you mentioned before, which is really almost this like Hollywood-esque moment of uh, John Ashcroft is unconscious. They worry that the White House is going to try to get his like unconscious hand to sign reauthorizing the warrantless wiretapping program. Jim Comey is racing over. At that point, Comey is the deputy attorney general trying to stop it. He worries that because of traffic, basically, he won't make it. He calls Mueller his best friend. Mueller calls the FBI agents who are already in the hospital and basically tells them if the Secret Service tries to kick out Jim Comey, don't let them. I mean, it's really an amazing thing, the idea of like FBI agents kind of brawling with the Secret Service, but that works. It buys Comey the time to get there. Ashcroft doesn't sign it. The, the program is not reauthorized, but Comey and Mueller were quite literally best friends. And now Mueller comes in, his friend has been fired and humiliated. This is not the guy you want if you're Trump kind of looking into all this. Right, and this whole episode, I mean, before Hillary Clinton's email server, uh, this, this, was, this was the episode that Jim Comey's political reputation was sort of grounded on. I mean, he had a reputation in law enforcement uh, from his time as a U.S. attorney and as a deputy attorney general. But if you're saying, you know, Barack Obama found himself in the need of a new FBI director, he wanted someone who the FBI would like, who Senate Republicans would confirm, but who, you know, he could say was, uh, came out of the George W. Bush administration looking better than he had before. And that's based on this episode and his work with Mueller specifically there, where they showed themselves to be people who stood up for the institutions that they represented, the judgment that the Justice Department had reached on this matter, um, rather than the sort of political concerns coming out of the West Wing. They dramatically, you know, threatened to resign in protest and, and create a whole big sort of blow up for a guy who's in a job where the president can fire him, right? That's the kind of combination of guts and smarts that you need in a position like that to create a situation where the president would fear to fire him 
because he has, you know, a strong reputation and a strong understanding of sort of how the system works. And also, I mean, as you say, he he seems to have a, a close personal relationship with James Comey and uh, Rod Rosenstein, who picked him, who had come out looking quite bad from the previous week's efforts, now seems to have really gone out of his way to to put somebody in place who... I mean, it's turned this into an enormous backfire for the Trump administration, it seems like. Right. And it's it's really fascinating, too, because, you know, if Comey, um, you know, had been taking all these memos and, you know, writing down notes during meetings with Trump and during phone calls and right after and kind of recording all of this um, because he had concerns, Mueller does all of that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he also plays by the book. He is also very strict and, you know, concerned about, like, the line, you know, being drawn very strongly between you know, the FBI and law enforcement and and the White House and the executive, you know, that side of the executive branch. Um, so, you know, it's it's pretty telling that there are suddenly all these stories about, you know, Trump being told that he needs to get his own personal lawyer outside of White House counsel and how, you know, other White House aides are worried that they need to now lawyer up because, you know, they're under investigation. I think that alone is a signal that they're taking this very seriously. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting with, with Comey, the notes taken by FBI agents are admissible in court. Uh-huh. So this isn't just that he has memos that are now going to slowly leak. You know, Trump, if he were not Trump, would have realized that FBI directors have warred with U.S. presidents for decades and almost always win. So if he thought that you just fired Jim Comey and Comey disappears quietly into the good night, it was stupider than the stupid decision is already thought to be. You will have an endless leak of the Comey memos, plus the fact that if it does go to court, these are legal documents. These are not something where they're just kind of off in the ether somewhere. These can be used and are often used by prosecutors to build cases. And, you know, Jen's point, I think, is exactly right. I remember, because I'm old, the Clinton years, the Clinton aides racked up gigantic legal bills, I meaning hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you're a Trump White House staffer, your life sucks already because you go out there and say one thing one day, the president will humiliate you, then leak out that he doesn't like or trust you. And then on top of that, you have the very real chance of being bankrupted with legal costs. I have genuinely never understood why somebody would work for Donald Trump. Now, if I were somebody who realizes I might be bankrupt and sent to prison, I would be the first rat leaving the ship. Yeah, I mean, they he are... does have good experience with bankruptcy, though, so he could be useful in that sense. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, they are definitely creating a, a situation where, you know, the administration already been a little bit slow to, to staff up, and now they are in the engulfed in scandal and under mysterious investigation front. It's... It's really not looking like a, a great place you would you would want to jump in and, and work. I mean, firing Comey also has that effect. I mean, I think most people who take government jobs, whoever they are, like to think of themselves as people of integrity who would stand up and do the right thing under the right circumstances. And knowing that you're working for someone who will have no compunction about cutting you off at the knees, firing you, contradicting you in public, um, even... As you were saying, the FBI director has traditionally been considered untouchable, right? I mean, Bill Clinton really did not like Louis Free, but he wasn't going to do anything about it because it just it just wasn't done. You know, I, I mean, Hillary Clinton's transition, I tried to ask them, you know, like, are you thinking about Comey? And they they just they weren't, you know, it, it wasn't even a question Obviously, we all know her campaign was very upset at him, but this was just not something you were going to try to do. I mean, both because it would be considered wrong to take vengeance, but also because it would be a disaster. The FBI um, 
has won an enormous amount of institutional independence from the political branches of government, puts a lot of value on that. And, you know, they they tend to fight back. And Trump has absolutely no respect for for anything of, of that nature. And it's gotten him in a lot of trouble. I think he also doesn't really seem to understand the, the relationship between the president and the FBI director or the White House and the FBI's institution. So um, so Ben Wittes of Lawfare, who um, is also at Brookings, um, also full disclosure, I used to work with him at Lawfare. Um, but he is a close personal friend of Jim Comey, and he's also a national security legal analyst. Um, and he has been keeping really quiet kind of lately um, about his relationship and conversations with Comey behind the scenes until yesterday when he essentially went public and said, here's what Comey told me. Mm -hmm. Um, He put it on his his site on Lawfare and also at New York Times ran a version um, of it. And it was really fascinating to see kind of what Comey was feeling and thinking, you know, we get it, you know, secondhand through Ben, but, you know, it seems like he really was deeply disturbed by the fact that Trump was trying to make him one of the gang, like, buddy, buddy, hey, you're on our side, right? Like you're part of the team. And for for Trump, I mean, that makes sense, right? Like for coming from a business perspective, he has, you know, puts a high value on loyalty and he has like a really close personal, you know, circle of people. He doesn't trust people very easily. And so he was kind of like trying to, you know, he tried to pull him into a hug. Um, and Comey was very awkward trying to not hug the president on camera because that's inappropriate. And Comey apparently, you know, according to the conversations with Ben, um, was really deeply uncomfortable with that and was kind of like taking steps to make, you know, tell people that um, privately and to write down those memos and to say like, you know, here's what I'm trying to draw this line. But the president keeps trying. He keeps calling me to chat. It's wildly inappropriate. And it seems that Trump like just maybe genuinely didn't understand that that's that the FBI director is not part of your team. And this is, I mean, I think something everyone needs to think about as we have this search for a new FBI director, right? That, you know, when Trump came in, we can say, well, Trump didn't understand the relationship between a president and the FBI director. And that's because Comey had already been FBI director. And prior to that, he'd been deputy attorney general, also involved in that relationship. He'd been a U.S. attorney. Uh, If Trump has a vision of how he wants that relationship to be, and his goal is finding someone who fits that, and you see the process here, right? Sometimes a president will say, okay, I've gotten in a jam. I need to get myself out of the jam. I'm going to go hat in hand to Pat Leahy, the ranking Democrat in the Judiciary Committee, and ask him for some names. Right. You know, and and Leahy will try to be constructive and not put up people I wouldn't consider, and we'll get a mutually agreed upon candidate, and we'll, like, move on from this scandal. Trump has not done that at all. He's been <laughs> like, let's call people into the Oval Office to chat. Uh, we're now talking about Joe Lieberman, who... Well, I have a lot of thoughts about Joe Lieberman, but he, <laughs> Joe Lieberman does not have the resume that the past four or five FBI directors right. have had, right? And it seems to be based in Trump's mind on the idea of like, hey, do I like this guy? And I think also in Trump's mind, you know, to, to Jen's point, which I totally agree with about his lack of understanding, I, I would go a little bit further even and say that he just may understand just doesn't give a damn. Right. But, you know, he <laughs> has- Also possible. Which is also very possible. <laughs> but he seems to have made multiple misjudgments on the Comey front, but one of them, and I know, Matt, you've heard about this before, he thought, it seems genuinely, that Democrats would have celebrated this. Yes. Because right. they hated him and thought, he hated Comey, I should say, and thought Comey swung the election against Hillary and towards Trump. He seems to have genuinely, genuinely been surprised that Democrats were angry 
Here, too, he seems to genuinely believe that Democrats will line up to vote for Joe Lieberman. As you know, a lot of Democrats despise Joe Lieberman. They say him as self-righteous, as somebody who did not endorse Barack Obama, instead endorsed John McCain, is very close to John McCain, is basically a Republican in Democrats' clothing. Lieberman lost a Democratic primary, then ran as an independent. So if Trump is going in thinking every Democrat will line up behind him, it's a mistake. And so he has both the, the criminal misjudgments of not understanding that saying to an FBI director, lay off, is very likely illegal. But then he also has the political misjudgments, which are just as damaging. And it, it's sort of hard to understand how somebody could be, well, except again, it's, it's Trump being Trump, could be so wrong on so many different things of a major decision. But there's something funny about this, because like one of the ways you do this in politics is you ask. Right. Like right? there are plenty of people who could have told him, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. And very well may have told him multiple times, hey, you probably shouldn't do that. You probably shouldn't just call up Jim Comey for a chat on his cell phone. You know, that's not appropriate. Like there are many aides and, you know, there's White House counsel and all over the place. But it seems like Trump, you know, the kind of picture we get out of the White House is that Trump hears what he wants to hear. Right. And if he doesn't like it, he will just kind of dismiss it. Um and he tends to not even hear it unless the media is screaming it at him sometimes. Right. Um, he, the, he seems to think that the media kind of public perception is sometimes more important than what is like very smart, very experienced advisors are actually telling him. Well, and, and I, I think that's to the point with this, this Comey thing, right? He had seen on television Democrats criticizing James Comey. Right. So he inferred from that, if I fire James Comey, they will approve, rather than saying— Okay, I should have somebody sound out Chuck Schumer and be like, hey, I've seen you guys complaining about James Comey. I also have complaints about James Comey. Maybe we should get rid of him. And then, like, they would have told him, like, no, don't do that. We are complaining about James Comey in part because we're mad about this thing and in part because we have an internal political dynamic that we're dealing with. But we definitely don't want you to fire James Comey. We think this investigation is good, blah, blah, blah. And then Trump could have reacted how he wanted. But instead, he took everything he'd seen on Morning Joe at like 100 percent face value. And that's just not how the world works. I think also with Trump, in some ways, if he had gone down that path, I mean, we could sort of spin out the man in the high castle, alternate scenarios, but he went to cry and chuck, you know, as he likes right. to call him on Twitter. And say, if he were to do the Matt Iglesias strategy and say, hey, I'm thinking of making this change, what do you think? What we've seen with Trump so far, at least on major decisions, is whatever Democrats tell him to do, he loves to do the opposite. Right. So yes. Barack Obama and Sally Yates say, hey, maybe, you know, when Barack Obama, it wasn't uh, tentative. It was, do not give a high level job to Mike Flynn. <laughs> Sally Yates, it was, this man is lying to your own administration. He can be blackmailed by the Russians. Trump's response basically was, yeah, go to hell. I mean, even when he found out that Flynn had lied to Mike Pence, he didn't act and really didn't care. And there have been stories leaking out when it comes to Mike Flynn that Trump regrets firing him, kind of wants to figure out how to bring him back to the White House, which is kind of astounding. But he is someone that I think, even if he had asked Democrats, he very likely would have heard what they said and then decided to say, well, whatever they say, I'm doing the exact opposite. Sure, he must be. So wait, let's, let's, let's talk about Flynn, because that's in the other set of revelations here, where I think the most interesting ones have actually it turns out, not really related to Russia or this collusion or or any big-time stuff. But he was lobbying, I guess, for the Turkish government. Right. And he didn't file his papers on that correctly. Right. And then he maybe didn't tell the transition or he did tell the transition. And, and they knew or maybe didn't know and said, that's okay. You can be national security advisor anyway. 
And now Mike Pence is trying to put out there that he had no, he didn't know anything about this. I mean, Pence is fascinating because, you know, when you're the vice president, you're- A sentence that has never been said in the history of Mike Pence. That Pence <laughs> I've been is fascinated by Mike Pence for years. Um, saying no, but, mayonnaise is fascinating. You know, when, when you're vice president, you're, you're a key member of the team, but you're also the guy who becomes president if the president goes down. Right. And he has, specifically Flynn, has always been- the aspect of the Trump administration that Pence is like, it wasn't me, right? Like he's telling everybody, I had no idea. Oh, he lied to me. Oh, nobody told me about this Turkish thing, right? So the man on the inside, at least, Mike Pence, seems to feel that this is like a really big problem, right? This is what he wants nothing to do with. Flynn is the person that Mike Pence has had to lie about the most without realizing he was lying about it. You know, <laughs> the Trump White House, you can do like a, a taxonomy of lies. So you have the people who know they're lying and do it anyway, the people who are told to go lie and may not want to, and then the people like Mike Pence who, it seems, genuinely did not realize they were lying when they were lying. And it happened repeatedly. So during the transition, when Pence blocked Mike Flynn's insane Pizzagate conspiracy-loving son from getting a security clearance, which doubtlessly didn't go over well with his father, but then he was asked about it and it kept saying sort of, Things that were either lies or, or deliberately misconstruable about whether Mike Flynn Sr. had tried to get his son a security clearance. And then much bigger, Flynn went out, spoke to the Russian ambassador, told Mike Pence he hadn't. Mike Pence went out in front of cameras and said, we did not have this contact. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. And of course, it did. So if you're Mike Pence, Flynn is the person who is most responsible for you lying repeatedly in ways that are easily verifiable. And if you're Mike Pence, what's interesting to me is we look back at the most recent vice presidents. Joe Biden was extraordinarily close with Barack Obama. Their families were close. He was a serious person, a serious advisor with a lot of power. Dick Cheney, a lot, obviously, you know, the the dark lord, but he had a lot of power in the the Bush White House, less in the second term, a lot in the first term. Pence, it's kind of not clear what his role is. Like, he's not as public as predecessors. When you hear stories about the White House decision-making, you don't really hear about Pence being a major player. I mean, it's all Jared Kushner because thank God the fate of the Republic rests on his 36-year-old shoulders. But you don't really hear about Mike Pence in the same way, except Mike Pence the liar because of Mike Flynn. And that's fascinating to me. And so what went down with Mike Flynn and Turkey? What's 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 the story here? Okay, so I can just lay it out. So basically, it kind of all started with this weird op-ed that he wrote. I think it was in The Hill. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, where he was basically saying, um, he was talking about the Fatullah Gulen, who is this kind of moderate Muslim cleric who President Erdogan of Turkey has blamed for all of his problems, including the most recent coup attempt to try to, you know, take over. He so they is, used to be allies. Yeah, so they used to be allies. And they've uh, had this big falling out. They had a big falling but out. Gulen weirdly right. lives in Pennsylvania. He weirdly lives in Pennsylvania and has weirdly lived there for a weird number of years. He's in self-imposed exile because, you know, there are these massive purges and there have been against the Gulenists. So he kind of represents this broad, quasi-political, religious um, kind of movement. Um, it has... You know, different people see it different ways um, as this like insidious like plot to take over the world and impose Sharia um, or as this kind of, you know, super benign Muslim kind of super moderate, super kumbaya mm-hmm. and like Muslim schools and like charter schools. And it's probably somewhere in between. Um, but so Gulen is here in the United States and has been for a while. So there's this coup attempt in Turkey and uh, whether Gulen's people were behind it or not, uh, that's what President Erdogan of Turkey believes and is telling everyone. And so he wants the U.S. to extradite uh, Gulen back to Turkey so that he could be prosecuted uh, for the coup attempt. The United States doesn't want to do that. Barack Obama didn't want to do that. Um, 
basically because they said, okay, show us like some sort of evidence that you have. And they weren't able to provide enough evidence to convince the Obama administration um, to do that. So right when that was happening, it was kind of right during the campaign, uh, kind of in the summer of 2016, around then. And um, Flynn wrote this op-ed saying like, you know, we need to turn over Gulen and like we need to ally with Turkey. You know, they're our NATO ally. They're, you know, this kind of, you know, big, important partner for us in Syria and all of this. And everyone was kind of like really shocked, like reading this, like in Washington, it just kind of raised a lot of eyebrows why Flynn was like writing this really super like anti-Gulen, pro kind of Erdogan uh, kind of op-ed. And so some reporters started looking into it. Um, I can't remember if it was a Daily Caller that actually like broke the story. But anyway, they ended up finding out that uh, Flynn was actually basically doing lobbying work through his analytical analysis, whatever, uh, company that he had kind of set up privately when he was kicked out um, of the Defense Intelligence Agency. So anyway, yeah, he, uh, there was all this kind of paperwork, this paper trail showing that he had basically been getting money from people who was closely affiliated with President Erdogan and was like writing this thing. And then it kind of snowballed from there and turns out he was taking a lot of money from Turkey the entire time, basically, that he was advising President Trump. Right, so candidate so, Trump. Right, so candidate Trump's top and really only national security guy right. was getting under the table cash payments from the Turkish government. Right, and then during the transition, he uh, weighed in to kill or I guess delay uh, a military operation against ISIS right. that the Turkish government objected to. So, so there have been, you know, I think, Jen did a really nice job of kind of laying out the background of all this, but there, there's been this question hanging over the entire Flynn scandal, which is beyond the money, beyond the corrupt things right. to do with money, the paperwork he didn't file. Did he try to change U.S. policy? Did he try to shape the Trump administration to benefit the people who were paying him? And the new Turkey stuff, which leaked out this week, uh, McClatchy, to their credit, broke the story. Is the first concrete sense you may have that policy did shift in a pro-Turkish way because of Flynn and very possibly because of the money he took from the Turkish government? The, the specific issue was, Turkey has for a long time seen the Kurds as an existential threat. The Kurds are also the Syrian Kurds, I should say, are some of the best allies the U.S. has in the fight against ISIS. And there's been a long, a big question of when does the U.S. try to take Raqqa? Raqqa is the capital of the Islamic State. When do they try to take it and how? And the answer has been we need the Kurds because they know how to fight. They're willing to lose people. And then the question more specifically is does the U.S. give them heavy weaponry? What kind of what kind of arms do you give the Syrian Kurds? The Obama administration hadn't armed them, in part because they were afraid it would anger Turkey. The Trump White House was beginning to consider it. Mike Flynn came in and sort of blocked that from happening. So the thing that Erdogan wanted to make sure he blocked, which is giving arms to what he sees as a mortal enemy, Mike Flynn then dutifully blocked. So then you have kind of two related, very important questions. One, did he act in as an agent of the Turkish government and, and not to U.S. interests? And then two, more importantly, did the fight against the Islamic State in a very tangible way be slowed, possibly costing X number of lives because corrupt Mike Flynn was corruptly taking money from the corrupt Turkish government. I mean, these become really serious questions because these get beyond paperwork and $45,000 and goofy photos of Vladimir Putin. And this becomes matters of life and death, shaped perhaps by Mike Flynn, who Trump loves. It doesn't matter how much we learn about his corruption, Trump loves him. And so this, I mean, just try to, you know, clarify the the situation in, in Turkey to people. You have... Well, there's a lot of different groups in Turkey, but one group is ISIS, another group, the Assad regime, uh, third group, what we called rebels, um, who, uh, you know, mostly Arab, Muslims, Sunnis, um, 
some alignment with Turkey and and with the Gulf states from from those groups. But then there's this um, Syrian Democratic Forces is what they call themselves, right? And that's the Kurdish, basically, element inside Syria. And those are the people who, just on an operational military level, the American government likes to work with the best. They are a, a skilled fighting force. We feel that our interests are aligned with them and that they if we give them help, they can like do what they say they were going to do and, and take risks. But the Turkish government, which is a traditionally a close ally of ours on other grounds, does not want to see like a big, well-armed Kurdish quasi-state popping up basically just, just south of their border. So the Obama administration itself had had mixed feelings about this, right? I mean, it, you can say there's there's a, a legitimate range of, of policy disagreement, but they came down to the view that, look, this is the only horse that we have, right? And, you know, if we want to take Raqqa, beat ISIS in Syria, we need to work with the people who are capable of doing that. And the Trump administration has now come back around to that view, right? which particularly makes Flynn's role look bad, right? I mean, if you could say, well, we made this decision, but then we fired Michael Flynn and, you know, Jim Mattis, H.R. McMaster, everybody agrees, like, is more important to work with the Turks. Then you say, okay, it, it is what it is. But the fact that as soon as Flynn is gone, the decision is reversed again. Right. I mean, it really makes it seem like... It was literally Mike Flynn who was the only person holding us back. Right. Like, right. they had this one guy... <laughs> who Trump put in against everybody's advice, who was secretly getting money from Turkey and who made this decision that everybody else disagreed with. People are the foundation of any successful business and finding really great ones is probably the most important thing that any sort of leader, manager, and organization can do. And the fact of the matter is, is it's really hard to do. Everybody knows it's the thing you have to do, but that makes it difficult. Um, so ZipRecruiter is, is a great solution to this basic problem. Uh, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to a, over 100 job sites, which is one click. So, you know, it's simple, it's easy on your end, but you get your listing out everywhere. So once that's done, they're powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And that's what makes them different. It's not like other job sites. It doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. It's really, it's like an automated recruiting system, not just a job board. Over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. Uh, So you don't need to juggle emails, make calls to your office. You screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's really easy-to-use dashboard. Okay, so the bottom line, here's what you need to know. You find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter right now for free. Uh, that's the special deal, for free. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com weeds. Uh, one more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com weeds. You know, if we, if we think back to sort of climactic moments for White Houses, uh, the Obama administration, arguably the biggest decision Obama made towards Syria, the one that will, will be revisited and debated, that will be a pig part of his legacy, was should the U.S. have armed moderate Syrian rebels much earlier? There's a moment in the war where the rebels were gaining territory, Assad was losing territory. The entire Obama war cabinet, so David Petraeus, who was the he- then the head of the CIA, Leon Panetta, who was running the Pentagon, Hillary Clinton, uniformly believed this is the moment. If you arm the Syrian rebels right now, 
Assad doesn't get defeated, but he strikes a better deal. Maybe he has to leave power. This is the moment. And Barack Obama vetoed it. We can debate for many hours whether it was a good call. My wife, who is smarter than me and works at the Pentagon, believes it was the right call. I believe it wasn't. You can debate it. But imagine if in that moment, we were then learning that David Petraeus was being secretly paid by Assad or Liam Panetta. It would have been unfathomable that we would think a decision was being made or debated because one of the people was secretly receiving money. You know, we talk about the Trump, how many things are being mainlined and, and sort of normalized. We're at a point now where almost nothing comes as a true surprise. I mean, you could tell me Donald Trump took a credit card that from Jim Comey when Comey was slipping out the door and bought, rung up charges. Sure. Like nothing would seem implausible. But the idea of a paid agent of a foreign government shaping policy in favor of that foreign government would have been unfathomable in any previous administration. And if we learned about it in, let's say, Hillary Clinton, we discovered Hillary Clinton's national security advisor was doing the same thing, impeachment would begin instantaneously. It would be the discussion. The Republicans on the Hill would be would say, this is illegal, this is immoral, this is set back the fight against ISIS. She cannot serve as president. People this, are still trying like, to impeach Hillary Clinton, even though she's not even I, president. So. Well, <laughs> and what's particularly right. crazy here is the, the lack of separation between Trump and Flynn, right? I mean, Trump did fire Michael Flynn, but he has not denounced him. You know what I mean? He hasn't said, particularly in response to this latest story, right? He's not out there being like, listen, guys, I made a big mistake, but like, you have to understand, like, I did not know. And like, we fired him. And like, now we have different people in place. And this is not what we're doing anymore, right? Instead, he's like, sending him like late night texts to stay strong or so I'm actually... and, like, plotting to get him back in the government, right? I mean, because the, the exact analogy here would be, as you were saying, there's this big debate, should we arm the Syrian rebels? The vast bulk of the government wants to do it. It seems like Obama plus his like core guys at the White House are like, no, it's a bad idea. If we found out that Susan Rice was like secretly on the payroll when she convinced Obama to overrule everybody else. Like, she'd be gone, like, so fast in the bottom of the Potomac, you know? (laughs) The idea that, like, when you know you're already making a controversial call that, like, you think is right, but most people are against you, you just, you cannot have it be tainted by this kind of obvious corruption. And yet with Trump, it's like, Apparently you can. So many things are going on that, like, this was not even, like, one of the top three Trump stories of the week. Right. And so that weird, uh, like, message that leaked out that he had sent to Mike Flynn that, stay strong, I'm not entirely sure how to read that. Like, you can read it two ways, right? Like, hey, man, like, I care about you. Stay strong, bro. Or you can read it like, do not say anything. Stay right. strong. Like, right. a threat. And... I'm not, it could very easily be either one. And I'm not really sure. And the fact that like, we don't know if the president is like potentially threatening witnesses who could potentially testify against him is kind of a big deal. I mean, Nixon did like literally say to Haldeman after he had to fire him, like, you're a strong man. You need to stay strong. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Yeah. I mean, it could just be a coincidental (laughs) turn of phrase, but it certainly, it certainly has the look of Donald Trump is like trying to make Flynn think that he will somehow find a way to take care of him. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Just stay quiet. Trump literally did that publicly to Comey. (laughs) So like, 
if this is like a secret like leak that he told, you know, Flynn secretly stay strong, like he literally tweeted out, Comey, you better not leak anything. I might have tapes. Like, I've got the receipts. You better. Yeah, but he clearly doesn't have the He clearly tapes. doesn't have the tapes, I, I guess. He's just making shit up. But either way, like, it's not like it's beneath him to do this. Like, he's right. clearly fine with openly, you know, threatening former no, what, employees. What I'm asking about the, the whole, as we learn more about Mike Flynn's kind of staggering levels of corruption and ineptitude and the number of people telling Trump do not hire him. It's very clear that Trump not only regrets the firing of Mike Flynn, not only wants him back, which is kind of staggering, but H.R. McMaster, the current national security advisor, who's a very well-respected general who, when he was appointed, the whole world took a sigh of relief and thought, aha, there's an adult in the room who isn't Mike Flynn. There's been a steady leak of stories in parallel to the leak of stories about how much Trump misses Mike Flynn are the leak of stories about how much Trump dislikes H.R. McMaster, that he feels like McMaster overrules him, that McMaster embarrasses him by trying to call foreign leaders who Trump has offended and, and soothe feathers. So you've had this bizarre parallel where the national security advisor that all of Washington said was corrupt, insane, and unqualified, Trump is standing behind to the hilt. The national security advisor that all of Washington, including Republicans, said was the adult. Thank God you have him. Trump is sort of undermining through leaks day after day after day after day. And, and I've never seen anything like it. I mean, typically, as you said before, and I agree with it, if you have a corrupt aide, you throw him under the bus and back the bus over him a couple of times right. to make sure he's dead. You don't leak out that you want him back. You don't paint his face on the side of the bus. I mean, the McMaster thing is is particularly striking because the complaints that you hear, it, it they are exactly the reason that people are glad that right. he's in there, right? The complaint will be that, like, well, he seems condescending to Trump and, like, corrects him when he makes factual misstatements in meetings. But, like, that's good. Like you, <laughs> We need that. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, and it does, in a weird way, it lends some plausibility to a non-corrupt reason for Trump to have this affection for Flynn, if only because it's clear that the only kind of government official that Trump respects is generals, right? And the fact that Michael Flynn, a real general who um, got into big trouble at the DIA, but had a very well-regarded service record in, in, in the military, was apparently like nice to him and would believe or pretend to believe that Donald Trump had insightful things to say on world affairs, has clearly ingratiated him a lot. Whereas H.R. McMaster seems like he is trying to do the job of being the chief national security advisor to a president who doesn't know what he's talking about, which involves a lot of low-key embarrassing of the president, which is really annoying Trump, right? He wants somebody in there who looks good in the uniform, but who's going to tell him that like what he's doing makes sense, even if it doesn't. Right. But, and H.R. McMaster also just you know, physically, he's the kind of general that Trump likes. I mean, Trump likes the kind of big, brawny guys. If you look at the other generals pull, he's pulled into his cabinet, John Kelly from Homeland Security is a big kind of former, longest-serving general uh, in the United States military, longest-serving uh, soldier, I should say. Uh, you have Jim Mattis, who is not a huge guy, but has a certain level of charisma and intimidation. You've got H.R. McMaster is gigantic. I mean, this is a big, brawny, bald dude. And you watch him at the press conference in the White House, and he's in a, a sort of suit that doesn't really fit him well, and he's got his <laughs> weird glasses on. And you could tell he does not want to be in that suit. Like, he wants to be back in his uniform that he's worn for decades. And you would think this is the kind of guy Trump likes. He's a manly man. He's done manly man things. But I think you have it exactly right. He does not want this manly man. When he sees himself as he is the alpha male in the room, he doesn't want the other person in the room who is a legitimate alpha male 
without alpha mailing him. Mike Flynn is is a smaller person. And I don't say that glibly. I mean, Trump likes to be physically the biggest person in the room. Mike Flynn is not a bigger person than H.R. McMaster. And I, I think you're right. At a time during the campaign when no serious national security person thought Donald Trump knew what the hell he was talking about, Mike Flynn came forward and didn't just campaign for him, but campaign for him to the hilt. I mean, he was ch- leading the locker up chance. He was the one going on TV and saying Hillary's un- unhinged. He was the one who now in a very embarrassing way for himself, said that if anybody sought an immunity deal, it meant that they were guilty. He, of course, <laughs> seeks an immunity deal for himself. So he was the, the kind of guy that Trump needed during the campaign. And for whatever reason, Trump, even now, won't get rid of him. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that's that's about about what, what needs to be said. Um, all right. Uh, thanks, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, Yogi and, and Jennifer, for, for joining me. Thanks to our producer, Peter Leonard. Uh, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to all of you for listening. And we will be back with uh, two more episodes next week because it's twice the weeds. Woo!